I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 9. We'll be reading the entirety of this chapter together this morning. But before hearing from God's Word, let's go to our Lord in prayer together. Our God, we bow in humility and gratitude for the privilege that it is to gather in this place and to give our worship and attention to you. We acknowledge that there is so much that fills the mind and heart, seeking to distract and fill with the cares of this world. As we watch the news, our hearts are troubled. Our minds are easily filled with doubts and confusion. And so we need to hear from our Heavenly Father. We need to hear from your word of truth. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would take such eternal truth and press it upon the hearts of all who are here this day, leading us to increased joy and delight and wonder at the hope of the gospel that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. The word of our God, you may be seated. David is one of the most captivating figures in the Old Testament. And I would argue that he's really one of the most captivating figures in all of recorded human history. There is no one who was given more narrative space in the Old Testament to cover his life than David. And he is the king by which all successive kings in Israel are measured. 
We first encounter David in the book of 1 Samuel, where we read of his exploits as a young man. We follow him through his early years of adulthood, and we sympathize with him under the turmoil that he experienced at the hand of King Saul. Though the Lord God had made it clear that Saul's line would be displaced for the Davidic monarchy, David had no interest in forcing Saul from the throne, but rather he trusted in the timing of the Lord God and in fact entered into a bond of great friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. There really is much from the life of David that is remarkable, but of course there is much from his life that is very tragic. But here at this portion of 2 Samuel from chapters 7 through 10, we meet David at the height of his reign. We could think of these as sort of the golden years of the monarchy. In contrast to the disappointment of King Saul, David is beloved of the people, and the Lord is kind to give him a series of military victories over his enemies. And so here in chapter 9, we find him really at the pinnacle of his reign, and this act of kindness that is shown towards Mephibosheth is, I think, one of the most amazing pictures of grace in the entire Old Testament. And as we learn more about the nature of grace in this narrative form, it is my hope and prayer that the response of each one of us would be one of increased wonder and gratitude and awe toward the one who has shown mercy and kindness to the undeserving. And so let's look first this morning from this narrative at the pitiful condition of Mephibosheth. And so this is our first point this morning, the great need of Mephibosheth. Now, in order to understand the grace that is shown toward this man, and in order to understand the nature of grace itself, we have to have an understanding of our great need. And so what sort of need or weakness do we see in the life of this man, Mephibosheth? Well, first, we see his weakness in his lineage and the fact that he is a descendant of King Saul. Now, of course, any time there would be a transition from one dynasty to another, whether in the ancient Near East or any other time or place of history, it would almost be expected that a legitimate threat to that new dynasty would be done away with. This would be a way that that new king would solidify his power and create fear among any potential rival. So it would have been natural for some to presume that David would wipe out any living descendant of Saul, especially when you think about the way in which Saul treated David. In those early years, when David first comes onto the narrative scene, he is in the household of Saul playing that soothing music to calm his troubled spirit, where Saul responds by just throwing spears at him. And then later, as David grows, He chases him throughout the wilderness filled with hatred and an obsessive desire to kill him. And so if David now decided to take revenge upon the household of Saul, I don't think many would have blamed him, and perhaps some would have expected it. And I think we see that expectation even in the life of Mephibosheth when he first comes into the presence of the king. We'll talk about this more later, but clearly he does not think that he is being called into the presence of the king to receive some sort of blessing. 
but instead he bows in fear before the king. And so his lineage, we could say, is one strike against him. But second, we see the neediness, the brokenness of Mephibosheth and the fact that he is crippled in both feet. As David summons Ziba, this former servant in the household of Saul, there's this interesting interchange between these two men in verses 3 and 4. Notice how David asks Ziba if there is anyone from the household of Saul to whom he might show the kindness of God. Now, it would be natural for us as the reader going through this text to expect Ziba's reply to be, yes, there is a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. But instead, his reply is, yes, there is a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. Ziba doesn't mention his name. In fact, we don't read of his name until we get down to verse 6, when Mephibosheth is actually in the presence of the king. So why does Ziba respond this way? Why does he refer to him as a cripple rather than by name? Well, perhaps what Ziba is doing is highlighting the pathetic and weak, vulnerable condition of Mephibosheth. David will have pity upon him, perhaps, and see him as no threat. It would be natural for Ziba, as a member of the household of Saul, to be a little suspicious of this word from David. And so, highlighting the weakness of Mephibosheth might be a way for Ziba to protect this crippled man. Or perhaps Ziba introduces him as a cripple because his injury is so significant that this is all that you would see when you look at him. His very identity is equated with his weakness. His weakness is who he is. So how did all of this happen in the life of poor Mephibosheth? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we read that when Mephibosheth is five years old, news reaches his nurse that his father Saul, or father Jonathan and grandfather Saul, have been killed in battle. And when she hears of this tragic news, out of panic, she grabs the young boy and runs, fearful that he will be killed as well. And in her haste, the boy falls and becomes a cripple for the rest of his life, dependent upon others. And of course, this is a time of history in which there is no benevolence-type program to help those who would have such significant need. They would either be completely dependent upon another, or they would have to resort to becoming a beggar on the street. You see, to have a son in the ancient Near East was one of the greatest blessings and assets to a family, to keep the family name, to keep the lineage and the inheritance intact was utterly critical. But Mephibosheth could do nothing to contribute to the betterment of his family. Humanly speaking, he would have been only a drain upon family resources and inheritance, and so he would be treated with little value and worth as far as the world is concerned. And perhaps his very name was changed after this event that happened to him as a boy that left him in this condition, because the name Mephibosheth means utterance of shame. That would be, of course, a strange name to give to your newborn child, but it would make sense in the context if that is how he is referred to after this accident and these tragic circumstances. And so, every time you say the name of Mephibosheth, 
you are uttering a shameful existence. And the tragic thing is that none of this happened to him by any fault of his own. Ultimately, his weak and pitiful condition is because of the actions of another. It is the result of the failure of someone else. One of our former elders in the church who is now with the Lord, Vince Strawbridge Jr., had a whole host of whimsical sayings. One of them, one of my favorites, was the most important decision that you can ever make is the family that you are born into. We might say that Mephibosheth chose the wrong family to be born into. Of course, our brother Vince was just pointing out the silliness of believing anything other than the absolute sovereignty of God. But tuck this important away for, for now, for the moment. The helplessness of Mephibosheth's life because of another. But there's even more that we read in the text that highlights the weakness of this man we read in verse 4 that he's living in a place called Debar. Now, archaeologists cannot pinpoint exactly the location of this ancient city or village, but when we look at the names in the text that are associated with this household, this would be either in or near the region of Manasseh, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. And it would make sense if Mephibosheth wanted to go someplace where he could sort of drop off the grid, as we might say. Now, the name itself, Lo Debar, means no pasture. And so clearly, this is a barren land, not a very pleasant place to settle, especially when things like crops and herds were the predominant commodity and means of income. And I think it's safe to assume that Mephibosheth has living here in this barren wasteland for quite some time. He was five years old when he was injured. We read down in verse 12 that he now has a young son of his own, though we have no certainty as to what point in the narrative that son is born to him. I think at least by the time he comes into the presence of David, he is of age to which he may have a son. And so we can surmise that it's been 15, perhaps 20 years since this accident occurred to him that left him crippled. And he's been dwelling in a remote area, trying to keep a low profile, living in isolation, not wanting to be remembered, even if that means isolating himself from the benefits of the surrounding covenant community. O. Palmer Robertson points out that there is great theological significance to living on the other side of the Jordan River. He writes, the waters of the Jordan have rolled through history as a symbolic divider between this world and that which is to come. And so this isolation, you see, living on the other side of the Jordan River is not just a place of convenience for Mephibosheth, but this is a place of social and spiritual isolation. And so, because of all of this, the family line that he is connected to, his crippled condition, and the barrenness of living in this faraway portion of the land, I tend to think that Mephibosheth is among the most pitiful characters in the entire Old Testament, impoverished, left alone, spiritually cut off, crippled, forgotten, weak, 
living a shameful existence. This is a description of you and me, a description of each one of us in a rebellion against the Lord. That brings us to the second thing that I'd like for us to notice about the narrative, which is the kindness that is shown toward Mephibosheth. And so our second point this morning is kindness shown for the sake of another. Kindness shown because of another. Now first notice that this is not some sort of self-oriented kindness that David is showing towards this lowly figure. But this is covenantal kindness that is extended to him. It would be one thing for David out of some sense of altruism to tell his servants to scour the land of Israel, find the most weak and pathetic figure and bring him to the kingdom for some sort of photo op so that the people of the land would know that he is a king of the people and for the people. That would, of course, be self-interested in its motivation, though it might bolster his political gain. But instead, the text makes it abundantly clear in verses 1 and 3 and 7 that the motive of David is to look for someone from the house of Saul, from the line of Jonathan, to whom he might show kindness toward. And the kindness that David is looking to extend is nothing other than covenantal kindness. It's that little Hebrew word that you've probably heard us refer to before as hesed, covenantal favor. But what is so critical for us to notice is that this kindness that is shown to Mephibosheth, this needy man, is for the sake of another. Just as the damage that came into his life was because of the actions of another, so the kindness now shown to him is for the sake of another. There is nothing that Mephibosheth has done. There is nothing that he could do in order to earn or deserve such favor. But it is for the sake of another that kindness is bestowed upon him. Now, where did this originate? Where did this kindness that David longs to show to him begin? Where did it start? Well, you might remember the close friendship, the bond of friendship that Jonathan shares with David. After the killing of Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it was immediately evident to Jonathan that God was with David. Jonathan knew that the monarchy would be given to David, that it was not his to take after the death of his father Saul. And remarkably, after that event, Jonathan takes the royal vestments and lays them aside and gives them to David as an act of submission to the will of God. And later, Jonathan protects Saul from those raving madnesses, those outbursts of his father. And so David, in response, agrees to show kindness, again, chesed, covenant favor, to those from the household of Jonathan because of the friendship that is forged between them. Now, many have attempted to take this relationship of David and Jonathan and read into the text an inappropriate sexual relationship. But the only way to come with that conclusion is to have an arrogant agenda that is imposed upon the text, to embrace a historiography that makes every relationship sexual in nature. And of course, that's the time in which we live. But instead, the best way to think about this relationship between these two men is close 
intimate friends who care deeply for one another because of their mutual love for the living God and their desire to submit to His providential leading. David knew the kindness of the Lord God. He knew the undeserving grace of the covenant Lord who brought him from that lowly position of tending sheep to elevating him now to the place of a king. And it is that favor of the Lord shown toward him that moves him to this act of kindness toward another. And so what are the areas of kindness that are shown toward Mephibosheth? Well, let's look more at the particulars of this mercy that is shown to him. And this is our third point this morning. Riches bestowed, riches granted to Mephibosheth. And so this pitiful man heeds the summons of the king. He comes into the presence of David, and he bows in humility before him, which perhaps was a painful thing for him to do given his condition. And even if the messengers who came to summon Mephibosheth before the king told him that the king wanted to show kindness to him, undoubtedly he was a little skeptical and uncertain as to what to expect. But David assures him right from the beginning of their conversation in verse 7 that he need not fear, but it is covenantal favor. It is kindness, the kindness of God shown to him for the sake of another that will motivate him to bestow such kindness to this lowly man. And so with a mere declaration that flows from that position of being king, we could call it sort of a kingly fiat. David changes the status of this lowly man for the rest of his life. And notice first that there is restoration of land. This huge plot of land is given and restored to him, this family portion of the land. Now, of course, we have no idea how large this piece of property may have been but he is the only surviving member of the household of Saul. And so we can assume that the land holdings of an entire family would be quite vast. As we read later in verse 10, it's the whole household of Ziba, including his 15 sons and 20 servants who are to care for and tend the land. And so it must be a property large enough to generate revenue to support this many men and their families. But this is not just a valuable piece of property that is restored to him. This is his inheritance in the land of promise. He was living on the other side of the Jordan River in this barren land, but now he is brought in, enfolded into the heart of the covenant community, given land that was evidence of God's covenantal favor to the nation of Israel. But second, David changes the status of Mephibosheth by providing for his daily and ongoing needs. A number of years ago, when one of the Bass Pro Shops opened up in our area, I think it was over in Orlando, our family had an entire day-long outing there. You see all these wonderful inventions for use outdoors that you never knew existed but now must be on your wish list. And while we were there, there was some sort of charity raffle for a pontoon boat. 
And my wife asked, what would you do if you won that? And I said right away, I would sell it. (laughs) I have no idea how to take care of a boat. I can't even drive a boat. I don't want the headache of the maintenance and the insurance. And I've talked to enough of you all who have boats to know that it would be more of a headache than a gift. You see, here in our text, David is not just dumping this valuable asset of land upon Mephibosheth for him to figure out what to do with it, but he ensures that this land will be managed properly. By telling Ziba to tend to the land from Mephibosheth, David is making sure that this lowly man will be elevated to an important status within the covenant community and be taken care of for years to come. It is the king himself who makes sure that his daily needs are taken care of. But third, David changes the status of Mephibosheth by inviting him to come and dine at his table. You can picture Mephibosheth bowing before the king, knowing that he deserves condemnation, and hearing these amazing words from the lips of the king. Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all of the land of your father, Saul, and you will come and you will dine at my table. It seems like the more the king talks, the better and better it gets. And this is incredible because to be invited to someone's table to dine, even today we know it's a privilege to sit and fellowship with someone over a meal. But this is a place not only of great intimacy, but a place of influence. But there's even more that's going on than this. There is the land restored. There is provision of daily needs. There is the invitation to dine with the king. But this is not just a one-time invitation card that Mephibosheth will have to forfeit when he waits for a special occasion to take the king up on his offer. But as we skip down to verse 11, we read that Mephibosheth gets to always eat at the king's table like one of the king's sons, like an adopted child of the king. Utterly remarkable. He was an orphan. His father died when he was a mere five years old. Any memory that he had of his father will continue to fade as the years go on. He's never really had a home. He's just been a burden upon others. And now he is dining at the table of the king like a son until the day that he dies. So what must Mephibosheth do in order to receive this wonderful gift? What must he do in order to receive this change of status and this transformation of his life? Well, on the one hand, he can't do anything. He lacks the ability because of his lowly condition, and he can never repay the king for the kindness that is shown to him. But on the other hand, he must believe that the words of the king are true, and he must receive with the hand of faith that what the king is saying, though it may seem too good to be true, is in fact reality. You see, Mephibosheth could have ignored those messengers when they came to him at Lodabar, and he could have remained in that land of no pasture all of the days of his life, living in isolation and shame. 
stoking a heart of bitterness. Where he could have come into the presence of the king with an entitled heart, reasoning to himself, I should be there. I am the rightful heir to the throne. Or he could have listened to the words of the king and responded in anger. I don't need your pity. In fact, you are partly to blame for who I am. But instead, he humbles himself. In verse 8, acknowledges his unworthiness. There is more here, I think, in his statement than mere hyperbole to refer to himself as a dead dog. But this is an accurate assessment of his inherent lack of worth. And yet he receives with joy the inheritance and adoption that is offered to him. And so in a humble posture, he receives the gift of the king. Do you see the clarity of the gospel in all of this? God is the rightful king. He is the one who rules over all of creation and in his goodness has made us image bearers who are to respond in worship and obedience to him. But it was through the action of another, through the rebellion of Adam, our federal head, that we are born in sin and iniquity, living in spiritual death, living in a barren wasteland filled with futility and isolation from the living God. And this great king would have been perfectly just, perfectly righteous to destroy all of humanity for our rebellion against him. We have offended his holiness. We have attempted to usurp His authority. We have desired to live in autonomy and overthrow His rightful rule instead of bowing in submission to His kingly reign. It is utterly shameful what we have done against our Creator. But instead of the condemnation that we deserve, He has entered into an eternal covenant with His Son, who came into this world in humiliation and poverty and yet walked in complete obedience to the law of the Lord and then took the condemnation that we deserved upon Himself that we might be recipients of that covenant of grace, given an inheritance of eternal life, pardoned of our sin, and welcomed into the presence of the King to dine at His table always as an adopted son or daughter of the living God. The benefits that are offered are beyond our ability to comprehend. Benefits that are ours because of another. See, 2 Samuel 9 is not some nice allegorical story. This is a true picture of our lost and undone condition. And the grace that has been shown to us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. J. Gresham Machen wrote, No man is interested in a piece of good news unless he has the consciousness of needing it. No man is interested in an offer of salvation unless he knows that there is something from which he needs to be saved. It is quite useless to ask a man to adopt the Christian view of the gospel unless he first has the Christian view of sin. But a man will never adopt the Christian view of sin if he considers merely the sin of the world or the sin of other people. When I speak of sin, I'm not talking to you about the sin of others, 
but I am talking to you about your sin. The wages of sin is death. That is the law. But at the decisive point, Christ has taken the wages upon himself. That is the gospel. And if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Samuel 9, written a thousand years before the incarnation, calls you to put your faith in Jesus. And you can blame God, or you can ignore the call of the gospel, or you can stoke hatred in your heart toward Him as though He's at fault for all of the problems of this world and all the difficulties and trials of your own life but only those who humble themselves before the great King. Only those who recognize their need for grace and respond in faith and repentance will have peace with the living God. It would have been the height of foolishness for Mephibosheth to reject this offer of sonship. How much more foolish to hear the free offer of the gospel salvation in Christ, to have held out to you the benefits of salvation, of justification, sanctification, adoption, and one day glorification, and then turn away in disinterest and unbelief. But even if you cannot remember a day in which you did not profess faith in Christ, you still have a constant need for His grace in your life. We must not forget the end of this narrative in verses 12 and 13. First, this man who was an utterance of shame is given the wonderful blessing of a son whom he names Micah. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? Who is like this great God who has restored me to a position of honor and blessing? And second, the narrative ends there in verse 13 by reminding us that while Mephibosheth always ate at the table of the king like a son, he was lame in both his feet. And so though his condition remains, his status has changed. He still needs grace every single day just as all believers in Christ need His grace every single day, we are never beyond such need. Horatius Bonner, the author of the hymn that we sang just before our text this morning in his little treatise, God's Way of Peace, speaks to one of life's ultimate questions, how may I approach God? God's explicit testimony, he writes, is you are unfit to approach me. And it is a denial of the testimony to say, I will pray myself out of this unfitness into fitness. I will work myself into a right state of mind and character for drawing near to God. Were you from this moment to cease from sin and do nothing but good all the rest of your life, it would not do. Were you to begin praying now and do nothing else but pray all of your days, it would not do. Your own character cannot be your way of approach, nor your ground of confidence toward God. No amount of praying or working or feeling 
can satisfy the righteous law or pacify a guilty conscience or quench the flaming sword that guards the access into the presence of the infinitely holy God, that which makes it safe for you to draw near to God and right for God to receive you must be something altogether away from and independent of yourself. Your liberty of entrance must come from something which he has accepted, not from something which he has condemned. We are condemned, but Christ is another, the one through whom we might have and find that acceptance before the living God. And so may all who are here bow in humility before the Lord Jesus, the gracious King who holds out pardon and cleansing and adoption, eternal life to all who receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation.